Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. An airstrike last week on a migrant detention centre near Tripoli drew the world's attention, albeit briefly, to the plight of migrants and refugees held in such centres across Libya. At least 53 people were killed in the attack on the centre in Tajura, though some eyewitnesses say the death toll was likely much higher. Sally Hayden has been reporting for some time on the conditions under which migrants and refugees are being held in Libyan detention camps and she'll be bringing us more on that story in a moment. Later, I'll be talking to Peter Goff in Hong Kong about the apparent climb-down today, Tuesday, by the city's chief executive, Carrie Lam, over a controversial extradition bill that has brought hundreds of thousands of protesters onto the streets in recent weeks. Ms Lam said the bill is dead. So why do the protesters intend to continue their campaign? Peter will answer that question for us shortly, but first, it's to another protest in Libya. The sound there of refugees and migrants in the Tajura detention centre near Tripoli protesting in the wake of last week's airstrike in which at least 53 people were killed. Sally Hayden joins me now. Um, Sally, you've been covering this story for the Irish Times and international media indeed for some time and you're in regular direct contact with detainees in these centres in Libya. Can you give us a general picture first? How many migrants and refugees are detained in Libya now and where are they from and where are they trying to get to? So at the moment, there are roughly 6,000 refugees and migrants um, who are detained in a lot of detention centres across the country. Of them, uh, more than 3,000 are in Tripoli and they're stuck in areas that are affected by the current conflict, which is three months old. Um, Some of them are, as we know, either being hit by airstrikes or airstrikes are hitting nearby or they can hear the sound of fighting like very loudly all the time. They come from countries including Somalia, Sudan, Eritrea, West Africa, there's some people from Bangladesh, Syria, Yemen, um, all over. But there's kind of a slight differentiation in that there are some people there who can go home feasibly because um, they were what are called economic migrants. They were trying to look for better opportunities. But They have the option of going back to their home country, but there are others who have fled war dictatorships and can't go home. And so they're effectively trapped. They were hoping to get to Europe, but now the EU is supporting the Libyan Coast Guard to return people back to Libya who try and cross the Mediterranean Sea, which means that they're kind of trapped in a cycle now where they get locked up. Um, They find a way out. They try and see again, they get sent back, they get locked up again, and it just goes on and on. Now, as our uh, listeners will know, Libya has been a very unstable country since Muammar Gaddafi was toppled in 2011. It does have an internationally recognised government in Tripoli, but that's not in full control of the country or its territory. So who is detaining these migrants in these centres? I mean, who's in charge of them? So officially, uh, the the GNA government, the Tripoli-based government, um, has a department for combating illegal migration and they're in charge of the detention centres but in reality a lot of them are being controlled by militias and the DNA is effectively kind of a lot of different militias who have aligned together um, and you know they're they're not necessarily all operating in a cohesive way and yeah they're, they're controlling the centres. And what are conditions like in these centres? They're absolutely horrific. Um, I mean, even before the current war, things were really, really bad, like um, people dying from tuberculosis, 
going without food, sometimes for days, drinking dirty water, sometimes getting no water. Families are separated. There are children in the centres, like more than a thousand under 18 from UN figures. Um, like couples are separated. So mothers can't see, like mothers and children can't see the fathers except for maybe 10 minutes a week. And then also people are, are being both sold back to traffickers and also recruited by militias from the detention centers. And I know that a lot of detainees, particularly with the war now, are really, really frightened about this happening to them. And Sally, you've spoken on the podcast before about how you've come to establish and maintain contact with detainees in the, in these centres. But maybe for somebody who didn't hear that discussion, just remind us, you know, how, how do you keep such direct contact with them? Yeah, I mean, establishing contact was quite strange, to be honest, because they contacted me. So I um, have reported a lot on migration across the Middle East and Africa and um Basically, some refugees who knew my work in Sudan gave my contact details to people who were trapped in Libya, and they then contacted me asking for help last August. So that was actually when we published the first story in the Irish Times um, a few days after I got that initial contact. But since then, people have been essentially using hidden phones, which are prohibited in the centres, to just send out information. And the phones are kind of constantly being confiscated and they find a way to get another phone and they'll hide, you know, in toilets or under blankets or wherever they can to send out information about what's happening. So a lot of my contacts will kind of disappear for a month and then they'll turn up again because they've managed to get a new phone. And also people share phones between them. So like you might have 20 people sharing one phone and um, which they use to send out information. So it's, I mean, one of the things about this as well is that these are people who haven't had a chance to tell anyone what's happening to them. And so they're desperate for people to know, like they keep saying, we want the world to know this. We want people to know what's going on. And some of them have told me they've prioritized like speaking to me, say, over speaking to their family. And obviously I'm not telling them to do that, but that's how they're assessing how important it is that people know the kind of abuse that they're facing. Um, you alluded there, Sally, to the role the European Union is playing in the maintenance of this this system which keeps these people detained in these centres. Can you just expand uh, on that a little bit? So for the last two years, since 2017, the EU has been supporting the Libyan Coast Guard. Um, and, and effectively, like under international law, you're not supposed to return people to a war zone. Like you're, you're meant to bring them to a safe port if you get them at sea. But the way that this kind of been got around is by getting the Libyan Coast Guard to intercept boats when you're still in Libyan waters and then bring those people back to Libya. So um, last year, the Libyan Coast Guard intercepted 15,000 people and brought them back to Libya to indefinite detention. And the EU is spending uh, tens of millions of euro. They're not completely clear about the exact amount, but um, tens of millions of euro on training and equipping the the Libyan Coast Guard. So they now say that they don't directly fund them, but they indirectly fund them by giving them um, equipment and training. Now, let's come to last week's strike on the Tajura Centre near Tripoli. Who was responsible for that airstrike? So the Tripoli-based government blames um, Haftar. So Haftar uh, is the general who's in the East, Khalifa Haftar, and he ordered his forces to advance on Tripoli on April 4th. 
and um, they've been essentially trying to take control of the capital since then. And the GNA says that um, Haftar's forces are responsible. The LNA, as far as I know, still are denying that. And um, yeah, I mean, there's there's still a discussion going on and there have been a lot of calls for independent investigations. What we also know is that um, this was effectively a military base as well. So where the migrants and refugees were being detained was right beside weapons stores. And so the LNA can also claim that it, it was a legitimate target, which is why refugees and migrants are also accusing the GNA of using them as human shields. By, by placing them in centres right beside these weapon stores. Exactly. And in May, there was actually another airstrike on this detention centre. Um, and luckily, nobody was badly injured. Or I think possibly one person was injured, but no one was killed anyway. But um, at that time, there was a lot of warning that, uh, and we actually wrote about it in the Irish Times, that you know refugees were being held by weapons stores, but nothing was done to move them. And from my reporting, I know it's not the only detention centre where that's happening. I know of at least four in Tripoli where this is happening. And there were actually two strikes last week, isn't that right? Yeah, yeah, there was one um, that I don't think actually injured anyone, but it hit very close by. It hit a weapons store close by. And then the second one was a direct hit on one of the halls where the migrants and refugees were being held. And Sally, you provided us with, with audio of the second strike, and it, it's quite distressing to hear, but it does give us a sense of the terror inflicted on these people, and it gives us an insight into what they were, they were put through last week. So we're going to play that clip now. Sally, I was struck there by the reaction within the centre just after the strike. You hear every emotion there. There's obvious shock and distress. And, and some people almost almost sound like they're cheering. You know, it's, it seems to be a scene of utter confusion. How, how would you, what was your reaction to that or how would you describe that? So that audio clip um, is actually from one of the holes that wasn't directly hit, whereas in the hole that was directly hit, um, I've been speaking to someone who was hiding in the bathroom when that happened and he said that there was a, you know, a massive bang and then almost everything went silent. Like he, he just said he was, you know, it was silent. It was like, and he, he suddenly realized that everybody was dead. Um, and in this hole that we actually listened to, there wasn't a direct hit, but I do think that some people were either injured or killed, but that was just kind of, um, you know, from, from the blast, I guess. And I think, I've heard in a lot of different um, situations where people do that kind of shouting that to us sounds like celebrating. From what I know, that's because they're locked inside. So they're trying to make noise to let people know that something has happened um, because for them, they can't get out. You know, it's not like they can run away from this. And there were allegations in the other hole where the direct hit happened that after the first airstrike, people actually tried to escape and guards um, allegedly shot at them to stop them from getting out. And that was when the second hit happened. 
And Sally, between the two strikes, actually, you had a call from a 16-year-old boy who was in that premises or hall where we just heard that reaction just now. Um, we're going to hear just a little bit of the call that he made to you. It's 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 quite inaudible, but you maybe you might explain to us afterwards what, what he said to you. It was close to you. Was anyone hurt? As I say, Sally, you, I mean, you can hear the distress in that in that young man's voice, but maybe not. It's not clear what he was saying. So maybe just tell us a bit more about what he said to you. So he called me. Um, I think first he actually sent me a message, and then he called me, and he was basically saying that there's been an airstrike, and then he was saying we're in a terrible moment. I mean, the thing is, he's only 16. His English is quite bad. And he was trying to kind of convey what had happened. And I actually felt bad after because I wasn't really sure whether it was serious because, you know, people are calling me all the time and the airstrike might have been, you know, a distance away and they obviously still got frightened, um, which is totally justifiable. But I didn't quite realize how close it was. And yeah, he just called me. He said, um, at the end, I think, pray for us, just pray for us. So. And where was he from, Sally? He's a, an Eritrean. Right. Um, I know you've also been speaking to many of the detainees, as we said. Um, there's another particular one. We might hear a little bit of uh, w- one of your conversations. And this is with a, a young man who actually managed to escape the centre into Jura some months back. They are just detaining the people to the prison where there is no UNHCR, where there is no any other organisation, MSF. There's a prison like that. Until you pay the money, you, they, will, they will release you if you pay the money. But if you're not paying the money, you will stay there for the rest of your life. Nowadays, as, as everybody knows, there's no food, enough food in the detention centers in Libya because they are eating the foods once in a day. Sometimes the, the residents of Tajuras, those who are living in that area, sometimes they are coming to the detention center looking for, the, for someone who works for them. They just come there and call and knock the door. And they say, we need five abidat, which means we need five slaves without respect. They call you outside, you work for them the whole day. They, after you finish the job, they give you five dinar. Some people, they are not, some of them, they are not giving for you even one penny. They just give you one packet of the cigarettes and vegetables. One day you will go to hear all the refugees will die. You will going to hear the news, the, the other bad news. If you are not believing me today, eh, the next time after the victims happen, you will going you will believe me at that time. Just tell us something about that young man, Sally. What's what's his background? So he actually contacted me a few months ago um, basically asking for help because he had been taken to a weapons store in the military base that's kind of a part of the Tajura complex. And he sent me videos showing himself surrounded by bombs um, and said that he was being forced to load weapons and that he wanted to escape. And obviously, as a journalist, you know, there's not that much I could do except talk to him quite a lot. Um, and he managed to escape I think at the end of May, there was a big crackdown because um, 
people inside Tajura, refugees had been sending information out to organizations and to journalists as well, including myself. And from what they say, the guards kind of launched a campaign to figure out who it was and took three of the community leaders to, they have an isolation room and effectively tortured them until they gave over the names of people who might be involved in sending out information. And a lot of those people afterwards managed to escape, but, um, but yeah, that was quite frightening. And, and one of the things that they were warning about was the fact that they were so vulnerable because they were being kept beside these weapons. So it also gives you an indication of how they're being stopped from, from speaking and how detrimental that can be when you see something like the Tejora airstrike. And the experiences he describes there, Sally, are, are horrific. But these are testimonies you're getting again and again from these uh, p- people in, held in these centres. Yeah, exactly. I mean... I think it's undeniable that this is what's happening. And it's been quite strange for me reporting on something like this remotely. Um, You know, like you don't, obviously you don't know who to trust when they first contact you and it takes a long time to figure out all the facts of what's happening. But I mean, I have so many testimonies now and I'm also checking them of people on the ground who are speaking off the record um, and are confirming a lot of what I'm finding out. So yeah, I think it's fair to say that that this level of abuse and this level of mistreatment is happening. The conditions these people are living in, in an unstable, war-torn country, they're clearly unsustainable. But given that the European Union is unlikely to radically change its stance on admitting migrants and refugees in the, in the immediate future, there's just too much resistance, I think, among some member states to, to having a more liberal migration policy. So given that as a fact, which we can't change for now, what do you think can be done to alleviate the suffering of these people? I mean, it's a very hard question, to be honest, because, um, you know, as, as journalists especially, like we're not really the ones who are in charge of solving policy. But from my perspective, I think it's important that people at least know the consequences of these policies and know that this is very much related to European policy. Um, there is, which we haven't spoken about, there is legal evacuation. So uh, the UN Refugee Agency does register people and they do evacuate some people, but that's dependent on states offering spaces. And obviously it's a bit hypocritical for European politicians and others to kind of say, well, why are they trying to come illegally when they're not offering spaces on legal programs? Um but there, there have been a few evacuations. I think since the war started three months ago, four times more people, nearly four times more people have been returned to Libya than have been legally evacuated out. So that gives you an idea of how quickly the detention centres are filling up. But I mean, that still offers a sliver of hope for some of those who are detained. And I mean, you mentioned at the start there are 6,000 maybe in the, in the detention centre. So what kind of, um, in terms of the uh, legal evacuations, what kind of rate is there? I mean, what kind of hope do you have if you're one of those 6,000? I know the UN was planning on evacuating 2,500 people this year. Um, I don't know if they'll fully hit that. But I mean, having said that as well, there are 6,000 in the detention centres, but then there are people who are getting sold out to smugglers or paying their way out and paying to go to sea again and then getting put back in detention. Um, One of the guys who I interviewed, uh, the one who was hiding in the toilet and managed to survive the direct hit by the airstrike, 
has tried to cross the Mediterranean four times now, and he's been in six different detention centers. So essentially, they're stuck in a cycle that they just can't get out of until they find some way to escape. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to know how many people are really stuck in that cycle because people go missing or disappear all the time as well. Okay, well, Sally, as you rightly say, it's not your job to come up with the solutions, but you're doing a brilliant job in putting these these really important facts into the public domain. Thanks for that today. Yeah, thanks so much. It's to Hong Kong now, where today, Tuesday, the territory's chief executive, Carrie Lam, said a controversial extradition bill that triggered major protests over the past few weeks is dead. She also acknowledged that the government's efforts in regard to the bill had been, quote, a complete failure. Peter Goff is in Hong Kong for the Irish Times and joins me now. Peter, this is quite a climb down by Carrie Lam and it's very unusual given that she could not have delivered it without the approval of the Chinese government in in Beijing. But will it be enough to end the crisis there? I don't think it will, Chris. Well... She's been accused quite widely here of of appearing to make a dramatic climb down, but really, in effect, she hasn't really changed uh, anything. It's uh, she's it's really a matter of semantics. She a couple of weeks ago she suspended the bill, but refused to withdraw it fully. So today, quite dramatically, she stood there and she apologised uh, once again to the people of Hong Kong. She said her government was a failure, and she said the quite a, a dramatic language, saying the bill is dead. Uh, but she refused to say it was actually cancelled, it was actually withdrawn, and she hasn't initiated the actual um, legislative procedures that would be required to terminate the bill. So in effect, nothing has changed. Now, just to remind people, I suppose, the extradition bill itself, which which triggered these protests, which brought, uh, according to one estimate, up to two million people onto, onto the streets on one occasion, this extradition bill, opponents said it would allow China to pick up suspects in Hong Kong and take them to mainland China for trial, and um, where, where legal protections are much weaker. But it, it's clear now is that these protests are about much more than this bill, isn't that right? Yes, yeah, several weeks ago it morphed into a much wider um, a wider debate. Uh, for a start, particularly in June the 12th, there was one uh, one big um, rally where police reacted very um, violently and uh, there's been many allegations since of police brutality and excessive force and so on. And that really pitted the students against the police force and against the authorities um, for that uh, sort of heavy handedness. And then the list of demands started to grow. They asked, they demanded an inquiry into that particular event. They demanded that Carrie Lam step down. They wanted a, a full exoneration of all of the students and, uh, and asking that they would not be sent to jail after these protests like they were after the 100 were at least after the umbrella movement five years ago and then at the they kept on saying ultimately the root of all evil is the fact that Carrie Lam is appointed by the chief executive is appointed by Beijing there's a small she's pre the candidates are pre-selected there's a small committee of 1200 people who choose the leader and that's the root of all evil and that that has to be addressed are this cycle of mistrust and this cycle of sort of, uh, of of issues with the population against the administration will continue. You refer there, Peter, to the, the allegations of police brutality and the, the police violence. But of course, then last week, um, things took a turn when maybe for the first time, some of some of the protesters did engage in acts of violence themselves and they, they broke into the legislative building and, and vandalised the, the inner chamber. Um, has there been any kind of backlash against the protesters arising from those actions? 
the, that was expected and it didn't manifest itself interestingly enough there was probably several hundred uh, stormed the uh, legislative council on july the 1st which was the 22nd anniversary of the handover from britain back to back to china uh, the hong kong protesters have always prided themselves in being orderly and peaceful and this was the first um, initiative that actually went into went into more violent uh, territory and uh, where they committed acts of violence of vandalism in the legislature afterwards there was a lot of um, uh, concern and discussion about whether that would split the pro-democracy camp or whether people would um, sort of then feel that they had gone too far. But ultimately it has not happened. They have got widespread support from all um, facets of the community since that. Um, there were acts of violence, but they were very selective and very politically uh, aimed acts. Uh, they they didn't um, they didn't uh, assault um, police or they didn't uh, and they're, they're um, were well behaved uh, beyond just making those uh, sort of uh, just gestures within the legislators. So, so far that has not uh, turned against them and they have gained a momentum since that. And what's the, what's the atmosphere like in Hong Kong now, Peter? I mean, is there a sense of calm or are people bracing themselves for, for more protests, potentially even more, more violence in the weeks ahead? Well, on Sunday there was... Uh, 230,000 estimated anyway of people at a protest where they went to um, the Kowloon train station where, where which is a direct high-speed link to the Chinese mainland. It was very, very uh, good-natured and very orderly and very peaceful. Uh, quite amazing to see because it was extremely hot, uh, 30 odd degrees Celsius, the humidity 90 plus, extremely hot and so many people out uh, like... Uh, chanting fervently for several hours, uh, very motivated, very focused. Uh, I spoke to to many, many uh, uh, young people during during uh, the course of the day, and they all were extremely uh, keen to keep uh, persisting with the protests and uh, and to keep this um, campaign moving. Uh, while it was very largely, I would say, probably 80-90% young people, students of university age, there, was, there were also um, middle-aged elderly people, all, all walks of, um, of Hong Kong life were there. Uh, so they were intent, certainly, to keep going. Initiatives like today with Carrie Lam's press conference was obviously meant to diffuse that, but it seems to have the opposite effect. So what did the protesters plan to do now, Peter? Well, they regrouped after Sunday and then they were waiting to see what Carrie Lam would do today. Today, like I say, has just really just given them an extra shot in the arm. They seem to be now revitalised more than ever. They're talking about the next protest will be on Sunday, which will go right up to the the border between uh, Hong Kong and mainland China. Uh, that initiative is so they can actually speak directly to um, Chinese mainland uh, tourists who come across the border for uh, day trips and so on, and they want to convert them to their cause. They're looking at um, many more acts of civil disobedience. They're looking at trying to cause, like, create a run on the Bank of China here by encouraging everybody in Hong Kong to withdraw their savings from the Bank of China uh, simultaneously next weekend. So they're looking at multiple uh, tactics to uh, basically just... uh, continue to draw attention to their plight. And, and what would it take now, do you think, to bring this to an end? I mean, what, what sort of minimum demands would the protesters accept at this stage? It's very hard to see because now they have escalated right up to de- an ultimate demand for universal suffrage for, for, for democracy. And now they're going, in, in that regard, they're going toe-to-toe against Beijing and uh, Xi Jinping's 
very um, authoritarian administration. So it's very hard to see how any either uh, Beijing can step down from that. It's not um, something they have been known to uh, to uh, encourage or or to to walk away from. So um, it is at the moment. It's uh, it, it, we're definitely wandering into very tense territory here. Peter Goff in Hong Kong. Thank you. Well, that's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.